0: If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 5. We are starting a brand new series that is not so new for for those that have been here long term with us at K-First. we're going to do a series called "Remember the Table" that I uh, wrongly put "Return to the Table" on your U-version notes. Um, for some reason, I've got "Return" and "Remember" flipped around. Um, we're talking about the table. All that to say, this is our fourth series on the table practice of Jesus, and there's something that it stirred in my heart around five years ago or so um, that just wanted to just kind of pursue a study on what I think is the most underestimated and rarely talked about symbols in all of scripture, and it's the table. Uh, the cross is wonderful. Um, the tomb is wonderful. Uh, we could talk about uh, the anchor, the symbol of, of hope, according to the book of Hebrews. We could talk about the dove, the symbol of peace or symbol of the Holy Spirit, fire, um, symbol of the Holy Spirit or God's glory. There's so many symbols, but the most underestimated symbol, I believe, is the table. I mean, wrap your heads around this, that if you would have gone into a, uh, a First church home back in Israel, you would not have found one cross hanging on a wall. You would not have walked into a church in that day that had a cross on the wall. But can I tell you what you would have found and would have been most one of the most important aspects of the original church, as well as to an original Christian, as well as just to that general area? It was just this: it was a table. It was a place where people came together and i submit that it was one of the greatest tools that jesus used for ministry because when people gathered at the table miracles took place lives were restored hope was spoken the table It's an ancient tactic and an ancient tool that has been used for the kingdom for years. I love Dr. Carolyn Leaf. um, My wife and I love everything that she writes. We love listening to her. She's an amazing, amazing scientist. She says this, a shared meal is the world's oldest social network. A shared meal, a table. This is the original Facebook. Except instead of saying things about other people, you had to say it to their face. And you couldn't just sit and wait for likes. And the only way people reposted what you said at the table is if they took it to a different table. This was the original place. In fact, this was so important. If you've studied the book of Acts, in fact, one of my very first papers I ever wrote Uh, was out of Acts chapter 2, after the day of Pentecost, after Peter had preached on the day of Pentecost, and thousands came to know Christ, it basically broke down what the original church was about. It said the original church was all about the apostles' teaching, prayer, breaking of bread, and fellowship. Two out of the four essentials to the original church was what? A table. Connection and fellowship, and so we are gonna remember the table. We're gonna remember what happened around the table in scripture. I would even challenge you, as you're reading through your scriptures, notice every time a table appears because something amazing and intimate is gonna happen. I believe the table is what can heal church today. Not just the little C church, but the big C church. I believe that if we would do less talking about each other and more gathering with each other, perhaps we can be together as one. Imagine if, instead of talking about another race, you sat with another race. Imagine if you start talking about people of other religions, you sat with somebody of another religion. Instead of just hitting people with the table, this is not WWE. <laughs> imagine if you invited them. Not so you could tell them what to do, so you can break bread. Because there's something about the breaking of bread that gives them some of the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of us are so busy trying to change people, not realizing that's the spirit of God's job to do the change. And what if we actually invited them to a table? Whenever I meet guests, it's one of the first things I do. Let's go have coffee. Let's go sit for a meal. Let's build a table. That's what I want to talk about this month as we dive back into the table. Because it's at the table where we discover grace all over again. And that's what we're going to discover in Luke chapter 5. That's a little hint. If you have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 5. So either open up the YouVersion app or open up your your Bibles. Go to Luke 5 because I just want to dive in and remember what happened at the table. And of all the places I was going to start at, I was actually going to start off in Galatians chapter six, as if you haven't had enough Galatians over the past month and a half. So I ended up backing up a little bit, but I, I kept going back to Matthew chapter five and begin to remember one of the most amazing spots where Jesus called one of his own was at a table. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about this because it was at the table in Luke chapter five that Jesus approaches and speaks to two different parties. Can we pray today, is that, is that cool? Why, we, why am I saying, is that cool? We pray in church, all right, we're gonna pray anyway, so. Lord Jesus, this is your day. Lord, every day is your day. And Lord, because that it's your day, we, the scripture says that we can rejoice and be glad in it. So Lord, I just ask that you would just enlighten our hearts to what the Spirit of God would love to say to us today. Lord, I pray that this symbol of the table would be more than just something we would speak about. It would be something that we would live. I pray this week, we would be challenged to find somebody to invite to a table. Lord, I pray for marriages. Lord, I feel burden for marriages, Lord, that have, Lord, they dated at a table, but they've wandered so far from it, and they've lost their intimacy. Lord, I pray, bring them back to the table. For parents and kids with broken relationships, bring them back to the table. Lord, for individuals dealing with hate and hurt, bring us back to the table. Bring us back to the hospitality of Jesus. Because there we can view you. And that which you pour into us, pour out through us. Lord, I love you so much. Forgive me this year for cheering for the lions and hoping again. Bless one and all. In your name we pray. Amen. They are the worst. Sorry, it's Thanksgiving week. Uh, I haven't preached on Thanksgiving Sunday in like eight years, so now you're just getting the fresh off Thanksgiving lost Dave. So. Um, tomorrow, would you keep me in prayer? Tomorrow morning, I am, um, I'm preaching at North Point Bible College. I cannot wait to preach. Thank you. Um, can't wait to preach at North Point. I love preaching at North Point. And uh, a, there is a message that has been burning on my heart for months for this specific um, Monday morning, and uh, especially ministers deal with the issue of expectations and, and feeling like you have to perform in order for people to like you or stay at your church, and, and there is just that pressure of, of expectation, and so tomorrow morning, I'm going to speak about that. Uh, the title of the message is called The Weight of the Whispers, Ooh, just feel it. <laughs> It's kind of a cool title, I love my title. Uh, the Weight of the Whispers, and there are so many people, especially for these young pastors and ministers and missionaries to be, uh, wherever God takes them, there is this propensity to get crushed underneath the weight of the whispers of the people around them. And I believe God's gonna do an amazing, amazing thing tomorrow. Uh, but it was about a month, month and a half ago, I went to North Point to hear one of my, one of my best friends uh, speak, and he shared a story that I didn't know about. Uh, which is not too hard. It's not that I know everything, but I know a lot of useless information. And this was a piece of useless information I did not know. So I'm going to share it with you. So I'm glad you asked. Um, It's back in the year 1919 that uh, two brothers basically started their own sneaker company. Sorry, shoes, kicks, whatever you want to call them. Um, uh, they, my mom would say, tinnies. No, um, we'll just call them sneakers. Okay. They developed the sneaker company, and in, so in 1919, uh, Rudolph and Adolf, um, they were in Germany, not the one you're thinking of, guys. Get that one out of your head. Um, but Rudolph and Adolf developed the sneaker company, and they started off working in their mother's washroom and uh, began to develop this company so much that when the Olympics came around, they convinced some Olympians to utilize their shoes. And this just began to propel everything that uh, they were all about, and Then uh, the World War II hit, and they ch- had to change their factory over to other types of factories and All of a sudden, when World War II was done, they got back together and began to make shoes and Something took place in one thousand nine hundred and forty eight for which historians don't understand how or why they split. They don't know what the discrepancy was between the two brothers, but all of a sudden, Adolf and Rudolph could not get together on any one thing. Something separated, and it is still such a mystery that the grandchildren of those, those original shoemakers, they still don't know what split up the grandparents. And so those two brothers moved to the opposite ends of town and they took their shoe ideas in opposite directions. And one went and developed his own company called Adidas. And the other one went on the other side of the town to develop something called Puma. This was such a issue that even when the two were buried, they were buried in opposite ends of town. And so you've got the Puma side of town, you've got the Adidas side of town, and all of a sudden, People who work for those companies wouldn't have anything to do with the other companies. In fact, Puma people only went to Puma bakeries and Puma butchers and Puma grocery stores. And the same thing with Adidas. And Adidas people only went to Adidas um, businesses. And if I was reading this article just the other day and it says the present mayor says that anybody that is of the older generations, they still have this, this propensity that when somebody walks in the door, immediately they look down at their shoes. Someone walks in and immediately looks down at their shoes to identify where did they come from. You've got this riff that took place in a town because you've got Adidas people and you've got Puma people. You may say, well, Pastor Dave, what are you? I'll give you my answer because it's the title of my message. What what is Pastor Dave? Probably both. Write down that title because that's important. I am. I love. Oh my word! I love Adidas. I love Adidas, and I cannot lie. All oh, your brothers can't deny. I love Adidas so much, and I do like my Pumas. Don't get me wrong. I love my retro Pumas, uh, but I, I like both. I enjoy both, and I love living kind of in both camps. And to this day, there's not so much discrepancy between the two. But you go to that town in Germany, and you will see manhole covers, and you will see signs. You'll see everything with the different logos all over the place, because it's, uh, it's, it's in the town itself. And You may say, what does that have to do with Luke chapter 5? It actually has to do with everything, because what we've got here is we've got Adidas and Puma, so to speak. We've got two different parties that Jesus is going to speak to you from the table, or from a table. And whenever you think table, if you can just kinda mark this in your mind, think of the table, think of the hospitality of Jesus Christ, because that's what I am all about. Look at verse 27, this is an awesome scripture, it says, after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me. We're gonna stop right there. Anybody know who else Levi is, what else has he known before? Matthew, good job, you get a Pop-Tart. Matthew is <laughs> Levi. Matthew, you might know this if you know scripture, is Matthew wrote the first book of the New Testament. Well, in the canon of scripture, it's the first book of the New Testament. That's Matthew, that's Levi. Levi and Matthew are the same person. It's kind of like Dave Beringer, Brad Pitt. Same person, he just looks different on screen. Amen. Jay, why are you amening? Levi's gathering taxes in that that day, uh, tax collectors were not the most fond people. Why? Because they were Jews that stole from Jews. They worked for the empire, the empire, which was Rome. They basically were, they had their heavy hand upon Israel. And so what they would do is instead of doing their own dirty work, they would hire other Jews, other neighborhood people to basically steal and tax them and extort them. On behalf of Rome, so instead of Rome being the lightning rod, these tax collectors wore the lightning rod. They were seen as dishonest toward their own people. They were seen as ceremonial unclean. They weren't allowed to go to the temple. They were seen as completely dishonest. These type of people were the type of people that nobody wanted anything to do with, and yet Jesus walks up to Levi, walks up to Matthew, and says, Follow me. I love the fact that Jesus, in the midst of Levi's life, decides to interrupt him right where he is at. He didn't say, Come get cleaned up, and then I will interrupt you. He meets Levi in the midst of whatever he's involved with, and he says, follow me. And I love that. I love that about Jesus is Jesus interrupts his life the same way that he interrupts our lives. His presence comes and he touches our life and he interrupts that way and that direction that we were going and he begins to call us to a higher way of living. He doesn't avoid us. He doesn't see us and go the other way. He doesn't see Pastor Dave and go down the other aisle. I saw you the other day. <laughs> He doesn't, he interrupts it, and I wrote this down. Jesus interrupts what we are about to show us what he is all about. Jesus interrupts what we are all about to show us. He doesn't make us do what he is all about, but his life is an invitation, and he looks at Levi, and he says, follow me. And now, numbers of us would like to think that Levi rose up like a zombie and said, I will follow you. No, there was an act of his will that's taken place. There was a decision that Levi had. He was in close proximity and he heard the voice of a rabbi that looked at him and said, I see something in you and I choose you to follow after me because I see greatness in your life. I love that. And one of the questions that I had to write down this week for my life was this. Do I stay in in close proximity with Jesus enough for him to interrupt me every day? Or do we only stay in proximity to Jesus on Sundays and that's the day he's allowed to interrupt us? But do we live in such a way that we have this closeness to Jesus that invites his interruption for him to show us his way. And I'm afraid that often that we could treat our relationship with Jesus like a marriage. And a marriage where we, we walk down the aisle and we stand and we take vows and we have that honeymoon time of a uh, time of closeness. But what happens is, is if intimacy is not developed over the long term, what happens? Distance begins to develop. And we no longer interrupt each other because of the distance that's developed. And I'm wondering if some of us in this room have kind of lost out of our intimacy with Jesus, our passion in worship, our passion to be in scriptures just because we've developed enough distance from Jesus. Verse 28. And leaving everything, he rose and followed. Such a simple scripture. And leaving everything, he rose And he followed. It it, it can almost sneak right past you. But there's three things I want you to notice about Levi, Matthew, whatever you want to call him, same person. And it's something that I believe the table communicates. So if you're taking notes, some of you love points. You're like, you know, maybe uh, just note takers. You like uh, outlines. Here's your first one. Number one, would you write down the word sacrifice? Levi, when he followed Jesus... His response was sacrifice. When it comes to the table, the table communicates sacrifice. What do I mean? Because it says right there in verse 28, and leaving what? Everything. Everything. Not some things. He didn't just leave one thing and just go go back to the same thing. It says that he left everything. What does everything mean? In the Greek, it means this, everything. Somebody over here thinks I'm funny. I love this. I'm just going to preach on this side today. <laughs> Preacher jokes. His lifestyle. The direction of his life. The job that poured into his bank account. His reputation. He left what people had been saying about him and what people thought about him. He left everything. He followed Jesus at great cost. It says, verse 28, he left everything and rose and followed. Following Jesus has great cost. I understand what we say when we say we need to accept the free gift of salvation. You know what we're trying to say is salvation is not works-oriented. That's what we're trying to say. You don't get to heaven by doing just good stuff. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything is all about Christ. So when we say that salvation is a free gift, that's what we're trying to say. But the reality is, following Jesus has great cost. There is immense cost. But the problem is, is we've also developed church culture where we don't want to be followers of Jesus, we would rather be fans of Jesus. Where I can pick and choose what I like about Jesus, but I get to follow at a safe distance so I'm not always associated with him. And I wonder if this, if following Jesus doesn't cost you anything, then I wonder if you may be more of a fan than a follower. And I know that's kind of tough preaching on a Thanksgiving week. You're like, this doesn't taste like cranberries today. What is this? Don't, Don't hate on cranberries. It's amazing. Especially the sliced up jelly stuff. That's awesome. Don't hate on that stuff. I don't care if it's shaped like a can. All right, moving back. Some of us just want to be fans. But if we're going to be people of the table, there is great cost when it comes to it. Because there are times that we've got to give up. To sit with somebody, we've got to give up our prejudice. We've got to give up, there are times I've had to give up friendships to sit with somebody else. There are times I've had to give up people's opinions of me to sit with somebody that they may not like or approve of. There is great sacrifice when it comes to it, but what we see as sacrifice, if we really look at it, it's obedience. We're letting go of what we think is best, and we release it to get that which God has. There's sacrifice, and sacrifice. Levi was willing to sacrifice everything that he knew, all of his opinions, all of what he was for the sake of all of who Jesus was. And that leads me to number two. So we've got sacrifice. Write down number two, worship. Worship, verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And you're like, that doesn't even seem like it's worship. But I would submit, to the, submit you to this. That Levi was so excited about Jesus that, number one, he invites who? Other tax collectors. Why? Because they're the only dudes who would talk to him. Nobody was big on his Facebook friend list. And so he, he sent out one of those Facebook friends, uh, here's an invite, anybody that wants to show up. And the only people that are going to show up are the other despised people in the community. And potentially others, whoever that might be, we know from a few verses later that some Pharisees, some religious people showed up, just wanted to see the show and see what was going on. But we see that these people are showing up. Why? Because Levi wants to celebrate Jesus. This is what worship is. You know what worship is? Let me give you a very simple definition. It's making Jesus large. It's making Jesus big. It is putting him at the utmost of, of where he belongs and letting ourselves kind of humbly go into the background, into the shadow. It is making much of Jesus. It's one of the reasons why I love when the music starts and I love just expressing myself because I just want to make much of Jesus. But the beauty is worship is more than the music. It's when we go out into the world and we make much of Jesus. It's when we're talking with our friends and we begin, people begin to see the Christness in us. What is that? It's worship it's making much of Jesus and when we go to the store and we're intersecting with people's lives and we're beginning to treat people with mercy and kindness and grace and all the things that Jesus poured into us and they're like who are you what is it about you that makes you like that what are they seeing out of their lives it's the worship of Jesus it's making him much this is what Levi is doing He invites them over, and it's such a beautiful act of worship. This guy doesn't know how to clap his hands. He doesn't know how to pick up guitars. He doesn't know how to sing the worship, so he brings them to the only place where he knows where there's intimacy and there's welcoming and there's interaction. He brings them to the table, and it's there that he makes Jesus the center of it all. Is that not worship? Jesus, you're the center. You're the invited guest. Can I just tell you, I love all of you. You're not the number one guest in this place. We say Jesus is the utmost and he's the one that's gotta shine. He's the one that's gotta be seen above all, not the style of worship and not the preacher yapping about cranberries, none of that. It's gotta be about Jesus. It's got to be about him. And what I love is Levi models two amazing things. Two things I want you to get from, from Levi here. It's number one, that, he, that you don't have to have it all together to be around Jesus. You don't have to get your stuff all together to be around Jesus. That's one of the most famous songs of all time. Come just as you are. Come just as you are. Just come. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to wear a suit. You don't have to wear whatever. Well, wear clothes, please, but just come, just come. So come just as you are. And secondly, he realizes that if Jesus wanted you at your worst, why would he he ever conclude he's growing disinterested in you now? Let me say that again. If Jesus wanted you at your worst, why would you conclude that he's disinterested in you now? Levi shows us that God will take us at our worst, but it brings up the question, why is it the longer that we serve Jesus, the more ambivalent we think Jesus is to us? I see so many Christians, man, they're excited when they come to to faith in Jesus. They're like, man, I can't believe Jesus loves me. And the longer we serve Jesus, we think that Jesus begins to distance himself like, I loved you at first, but now we're a little, uh -uh," until you actually get your stuff together again. Jesus doesn't get iffy about you. The longer he is in relationship with you, I think that he wants to be closer. And he's just as close as he was before, but he but he invites you into this place to understand that you may not feel like you're saved all the time. You may not feel holy all the time, but it doesn't mean he's distant from you as much as you feel he's distant from you. He's in this place where he's loved you at your worst. And if he loved you, then why do we get to this place where he's disinterested? This is what I see at the table. He's interested in, he's interested in Levi and Levi invites a man, makes a big deal, not just in his own life. He makes a big deal of Jesus around the people that he's in direct relationship with, which sees number three. We've got worship sacrifice. We've got worship number three, right down the word mission. Verse 29, Levi made him a great feast. There's a large company of tax collectors and others. I still want to know who the others are. Reclining at the table with him. He has invited the worst of the worst with him. These are the only people that Levi knows that he's experienced in life. And what he wants them to do is for them to experience what he has experienced. See, following Jesus comes with mission. And we are called to seek and to save. But God has placed you where you're at in your sphere of influence because God hasn't called me there. He's called you there to be a table, to invite people to a place that I could not invite them. But you can. I love Psalm chapter one is uh, a tremendous chapter of scripture. Uh, Psalm chapter one. uh, Would you put that up there if you would? Psalm one says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and the leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. I want you to know something about the fruit that's here. Your life is called to bear fruit. But the fruit is born, not for the tree to be nourished, but for you to nourish others. Trees don't eat their own fruit. (laughs) Kyle talked about this last week. He started stealing my thunder for this message. The fruit is born for others. And what comes out of your life is not for you to be blessed. What comes out of your life is meant to bless others. And Levi is such a new believer, he hasn't even taken the class that you're supposed to take when you're a new believer. He hasn't read Pastor Dave's amazing book called Launch Boy. He hasn't done anything that smacks of discipleship. All he knows is this is what I've experienced and I can't sit idly by and let other people not experience what I've experienced. And I love how Levi reaches his community. He does it through relationship. He doesn't take them to church, and believe me, I want you guys to bring your peeps here on Sunday mornings. I want that, I desire that. But he didn't bring them to church. Where did he bring them? To the table. He brought them to the table. Ladies and gentlemen, our job isn't to hide from sinners. Our job is to bring them to a table. Some of us in church, we're so busy, we're so busy trying to hide from sinners. And I'm wondering if we're grieving the heart of God because we're hiding from the those that he wants us to share a table with. Yeah. Can you think of somebody you don't want to sit at a table with? Good, invite them to dinner this week. <laughs> <laughs> if you get a, some of you are thinking, if Pastor Ray gives me a phone call, and invites me to dinner, you're gonna be all paranoid now. <laughs> I want you to write something down because I think this is huge to understand this a little bit better. Your life is a table. It's a place to invite those who need to partake of Jesus' love. Your life is a table. And maybe you don't invite them to dinner, but you guys can invite them to something because your life is a table. It's one of my hearts for, for honestly resetting small groups for the next coming decade is to stop calling them groups and start calling them tables. What is a table? It is a experience shared with people. And you know what I'm gonna do tonight? I'm gonna share a rock climbing table. I'm gonna go rock climb with some people because that's my table. Some of you share tables around sports or hobbies or something weird, what's that thing called, NASCAR? Some of you share tables over equal needs. You know one of my favorite tables in the church? It's hard to have favorites, but I'll admit this one is K-Fam, where tables are shared over this experience of giving the orphan the chance to have a parent. A table is a shared experience. And Levi only knew tax collectors, so who else would he invite? So we've got Adidas that showed up. But not just the one side showed up, we get the other side. Verse 30. Worship team, I need you to come out so it helped me wrap up. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples. I love, I don't even think they were invited. You have that family member that just shows up because they think they're invited? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors were so broken, they, didn't, they got their own category of sin. How awesome is that? The Pharisees and the scribes, they show up. See, Jesus is not just for the broken and the lost. He's there for the spiritually misguided. Those that are just lost in their religion. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious leaders that were, they weren't altogether bad honestly they were the ones that were tithing studying, praying, following the law and in their minds if we can just avoid sinners in sin and or avoiding being being with them then people will think better of us because for Jesus to share a table in their minds was to be associated with their sin you sit with a tax collector automatically you have partaken in their sin can't believe that Jesus would sit with those type of people I can't believe Pastor Dave would talk with those type of people. Pastor Dave, I've had messages. Pastor Dave, I saw you talk with somebody. Do you really know them? Do you know what their background is? I said, No, but I know yours. <laughs> See, the Pharisees weren't at the table because they kept a distance. You know what the beauty of being at a table with somebody is? You don't have a long distance. They stood off because to keep a distance is not to partake in their sin. They're so busy protecting and showing themselves better. But can I say, Adidas Puma, I'm probably both. Am I sinner or Pharisee? Probably both. How do you know if you're a if you got a little bit of Pharisee in you, if you see sin or you hear about sin and you think to yourself, I could never do that, you might have a little bit of Pharisee in you. If you see sin and it doesn't, it doesn't remind you that there's still something within you that's a bit broken. And the church, will we call that the flesh. But if we see sin and it doesn't remind us immediately that we still have a sin nature within us, then we might be a bit of a Pharisee. If you see somebody in sin and your first inclination is to look down on them or to want to shame them or to think cruel things about them or to turn your nose up at them, if you immediately look down on somebody that you see as lesser than you, ladies and gentlemen, you're probably more of a Pharisee than you know. And I'm going to tell you, I've got one in me what's so ironic can I be real with you I am so judgmental toward judgmental people uh, it is the truth When somebody is judgmental I love to dish it right back because I'm like man you don't back down to bully. you stand up to a bully I'm from Detroit I know what to do with this stuff don't clap for that And every time I hear judgment, every time I read it on social media, I know what rises up in me. You know, what? that's reminders, that's me. I hate the very thing that I am. And when we come to church, let me just help some people out in the place. The people that showed up here are not perfect. And we don't come to church, this, because we're perfect. We come because we need each other, and most importantly, we need Jesus. Pastor, I'm not here for you. Awesome. I'm here for you. I don't need you to be here for Pastor Dave. I need you to be here for Dave Beringer, though, because he needs you. And you need him. We need each other. And today we come together at a table to declare our need for Christ and for each other. And I know some of you hear your relationship with Jesus and you're like, why is it that I still struggle with sin? Why is it that I still feel broken? Why is it that I haven't been cured? I want you to understand that when you put your faith in Jesus, he cured you of your past sin. He did not cure you of your need for him. He didn't cure you of everything. You're not perfected. Turn your neighbor and say, you're not perfect. Go ahead, tell your your spouse. You're next to perfect. Why do I still need him? Because you're not perfected. You're not perfected. But God didn't forgive you so you'd stop needing him. Because God will never lead you a place where making him in your life is obsolete. We sing the endless hallelujah because that's our lives. Verse 32. Oh, so good, oh my Lord. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What's so funny to me is I don't think they got it that Jesus is calling them sinners too. Turning their nose up, we've got Puma standing outside, Adidas at the table. And I look at that and I can scoff at them or I can scoff at them, but I could say, you know, what am I? Probably both. Still broken, still trying, still pursuing, still following. But yet I've got these pharisaical tendencies <laughs> that want to reign in. And Jesus wants to draw Matthew and the like unto himself so that he can draw himself out of them. And how does he do it? The key word is the last word of the scripture. What's the last word? Repentance. I'm going to teach you my favorite Greek word in the whole Greek words things. The word is menanoia, Meta change noia the mind what is repentance it is a changing of the mind it literally means a change of direction and it is something that i am calling our church to over this month that we would have a change of direction regarding the hospitality of jesus in our lives that we would stop sit and categorizing people and wondering are they the pharisee are they the sinner? can we just look at people the same way that jesus looked at them and said you are a candidate to follow you're a candidate of God's grace. And I believe we just need to repent. For some of us in the room, we need to repent of our sin. I bet you we've got sinners in the room. Anybody, anybody? Oh yeah, we got a few. All my pastors raised their hands, awesome. we got some Pharisees in the room, anybody? Oh yeah, we've got a few. Bunch of liars not keeping their hands though. But repentance changes our direction so much. Oh my gosh, this is so good. It changes, repentance changes so much that it takes a broken tax collector named Levi and propels him to be one of the forefathers of the church. He penned an entire book of the Bible that we get to preach every single day, every single year and call other tax collectors and other sinners. How does repentance work? It gets our direction off of the way that we we were and begins to focus on Jesus and follows him every single day. In fact, I want to give you a prayer that I want you to pray In fact, ushers, would you prepare yourselves for communion? And there's a prayer I want to teach you. It is very popular in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and it is such a beautiful, simple prayer. And I'm going to invite you to say it every single day this week. Some of you that maybe, you don't have prayer times in the mornings, I'm going to make it really simple for you. The Jesus prayer is going to be your prayer time this Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday, and the like, as it prepares your heart. invite people in your life to your table. Look at this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What if we started off every day this week leveling the playing field between us and them? What if we stopped living in the Adidas world and just looking at the Puma and seeing them for what we think they are? And what if we just even the playing fields? And we just say, Lord, if my life's a the table, then start here with me, meet with me and let my life be an invitation All your heads with me.